0: My name is Joe Hawkins, and this is the History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 50 Objects podcast. Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 50 Objects podcast. With just six episodes left, we're going to be covering a lot of history, and I hope that you enjoy it. Although the year of our object today is 1880, let's open up with the year 1832. On December 25th of that year, Joseph Smith and the Young Church was still residing in Kirtland, Ohio. The news of the day was that South Carolina was pushing back on federal tariffs. Now, if you'll recall to this point, no state had done anything like this before, and the government was exploring options to determine how to get South Carolina to fall in line with the other states. At this time, according to church records, Joseph Smith, after having read the news, had a vision, which has been canonized in section 87 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And in that revelation, Joseph Smith recorded, "...verily thus saith the Lord concerning the wars that will shortly come to pass." beginning at the rebellion of South Carolina, which will eventually terminate in the death and misery of many souls. For behold, the southern states shall be divided against the northern states." Quote. At the time this revelation was given, most people considered it to be wildly extreme. However, 28 years later, everyone considered it amazingly prophetic. After Abraham Lincoln was voted in as President of the United States in November of 1860 on a platform of bigger government and the abolishment of slavery, the next month, as Joseph Smith said, South Carolina seceded from the United States. Two months later, a Confederate government would emerge. They would encompass 11 southern states, with Jefferson Davis elected as their president. The Confederate states would make Virginia their capital and demand— that all federal troops immediately leave the South. So when the Union forces refused to leave, the South would bombard Fort Sumter for 34 straight hours before it finally fell, and the bloodiest war in U.S. history was officially underway. So, four years later, at the Appomattox Courthouse, when General Robert E. Lee finally surrendered ending the Civil War, The contest would cost over 600,000 American lives and completely tear apart the southern states. Now, the church, for the most part, sat out of the Civil War. They supported the Federal Union, and when asked to protect the overland mail and telegraph from Indian attacks during the war, as all the soldiers had been called back to the East to fight, they responded enthusiastically. Utah was also willing to pay the annual war tax of $26,000 that was imposed upon them as a territory by Congress. What was almost a curse, being driven all the way to the Rocky Mountains, now seemed kind of a blessing. As the Civil War raged on, Brigham Young was heard to say, quote, "...had we not been persecuted, we would now be in the midst of the wars and bloodshed that are desolating the nation, instead of where we are, comfortable, located in our peaceful dwellings in these silent, far-off mountains and valleys." Instead of seeing my brethren comfortably seated around me today, many of them would be found in the front ranks of the battlefield. I realize the blessings of God in our present safety. We are greatly blessed, greatly favored, and greatly exalted, while our enemies who sought to destroy us are being humbled. Quote. The church, however, still really wanted to be granted statehood. Federally appointed judges still weren't fitting in in Utah, so in 1862, during the midst of the Civil War, Utah again petitioned for statehood. While the southern states wanted out of the Union, Utah wanted in. Abraham Lincoln, however, wouldn't even consider it. He was unwilling to consider Utah as long as polygamy was in effect. Again, this is one of the Republican Party's pillars for a new America. No polygamy. Brigham Young didn't know what Lincoln's plans were for Utah, so he sent a representative in 1862 to understand what Lincoln planned for the Mormons. This was Lincoln's reply. Quote, When I was a boy on the farm in Illinois, there was a great deal of timber on the farms which we had to clear away. Occasionally we would come to a log which had fallen down. If it was too hard to split, too wet to burn, and too heavy to move, we plowed around it, and that is what I intend to do with the Mormons. You go back and tell Brigham Young that if he will let me alone, I will let him alone. End quote. At the conclusion of the Civil War, though Abraham Lincoln would be immediately assassinated by the Southern sympathizer John Wilkes Booth, the Union did indeed leave Utah alone, at least for a decade or so. And over the next 15 years, Utah, still a territory, would see some serious growth. The church would finish building the Salt Lake Tabernacle and officially reorganized the Relief Society with Eliza R. Snow as the new president. They would begin programs to teach the young men, young women, and children standard gospel lessons on Sundays, with activities on the weekends. And in 1875, the church would found its first academic institution in Provo, Utah, calling it Brigham Young Academy. That will develop into Brigham Young University, and 99 years later, after its founding, it'll win the College Football National Championship. Thought you'd enjoy that little bit of info. In 1876, the first missionaries will start preaching in Mexico, and the next year, the church will complete the building of its first temple in Utah, in St. George. But the major turning point for the church during these years will be the death of Brigham Young. Brigham, like Joseph Smith before him, seemed to sense that his time was coming to a close. In 1877, he would reorganize the priesthood and specifically the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Though Orson Hyde and Orson Pratt had both been made apostles before John Taylor, Brigham Young decided that seniority in the Quorum should be dependent on uninterrupted service. As both Orsons Hyde and Pratt had left the church at one point or another, this now made John Taylor the new president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. With that done, just weeks later, Brigham Young experienced extreme pain in his stomach, accompanied with internal swellings. He would die just a few days later. Today, most believe the cause of death to be that his appendix burst. According to those present, the last words that Brigham Young uttered in this life were Joseph, Joseph, Joseph. It seems that the man the people saw in Brigham Young that would initiate his role as prophet came to usher Brigham Young into the next life. How fitting, then, that John Taylor, one of the last people to see Joseph Smith in this life before he was shot at the Carthage Jail, was now to take the reins as leader of the church. So, three years later, on October 10, 1880, the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints gathered for what would come to be an extremely significant general conference. The members don't know it yet, But they won't be just getting a new prophet today. No, they'll also be canonizing a new book of scripture to go along with the Bible, Book of Mormon, and the Doctrine and Covenants. Today's object is the Pearl of Great Price. So what is the Pearl of Great Price, and how did it come about? The scriptural canon for The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is made up of four books. The Bible, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price. Now, although the Pearl of Great Price is part of the Mormon canon, it is far different than any of the books that make up the scriptures for a number of reasons. First off, it's the shortest book by far, being just 61 pages long. Also, the Pearl of Great Price was not originally compiled by an official committee of the church and did not become a collection as a direct result of a commandment to the prophet. For the most part, The book was organized at the request of a group of friends who desired access to Joseph Smith's work. We'll get to this story shortly. Now, the book is also structured far differently than the other scriptures in the Mormon canon. Whereas the Bible, the Book of Mormon, and the Doctrine and Covenants purport to be the historical, chronological records of people and revelations, the Pearl of Great Price is broken up into different sections that contain revelations, a translation, and official documents. Here's how it's broken up. The first section of the Pearl of Great Price is the Book of Moses. In June of 1830, Joseph Smith dictated a revelation regarding many important figures from the Old Testament. The book contains conversations between Moses and God, where Moses is taught about the creation, the premortal existence, the fall of Adam and Eve, and portions of their history. When Joseph Smith originally dictated this revelation, It was to be part of an inspired revision of the Bible. The second book in the Pearl of Great Price is the Book of Abraham. In July of 1835, an antiquities dealer named Michael Chandler was passing through Kirtland, Ohio. Michael had come upon some ancient papyrus scrolls that had been uncovered in Egypt, and he was looking to sell them. Joseph Smith and the church acquired these scrolls, and Joseph Smith said that, In much the same way he translated the Book of Mormon from the gold plates, he was able to translate and reveal the Book of Abraham. Many of these translations were published in the church newspaper in 1842, along with some of the drawings found on the Egyptian papyri. Now the third book in the Pearl of Great Price is called Joseph Smith's Matthew New Testament Revision. During the Ohio period, as we discussed earlier in this podcast, Joseph Smith was working on a new translation of the Bible. Due to the persecutions in Ohio, he never made it past the book of Matthew. These translations were considered tremendously valuable to the early church and copied and printed and then handed out in 1835. The fourth book in The Pearl of Great Price is called Joseph Smith's History. In 1838, Joseph Smith began a history on his life and the early days of the church's movement. Over the next 18 years, Scribes and historians extended Joseph's account until it covered his whole life. This history was published by the Church in a series of newspapers in 1842, and in 1902 it was published together in one book called History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Small portions of that history, details around Joseph Smith's upbringing, his reported first vision, his subsequent visits from the angel Moroni, the unearthing of the gold plates, and a few other important early events had been added to the Pearl of Great Price. His history in the Pearl of Great Price also includes excerpts from a series of letters from Oliver Cowdery, which he wrote to W. W. Phelps, about the angel Moroni's visits with Joseph Smith, including finding the gold plates, and his work as a scribe to Joseph Smith. And lastly, the fifth section of the Pearl of Great Price is called the Articles of Faith. In 1842, John Wentworth, an editor to the Chicago Democrat newspaper asked Joseph Smith for a brief overview of the church's beliefs. As part of the letter, Joseph Smith scribed 13 points, summarizing the church's beliefs. These are now called the Articles of Faith. So, that's the makeup of the book, and after hearing this, you may feel that it is a strange hodgepodge mixture of books and revelations, and in some ways you're right. They don't have a lot in common. So, How did they come about as a formalized book in the church's scriptural canon? In episode 19, we discussed how in 1837, Joseph Smith sent missionaries to England and the successes that they had in that part of the world. Fast forward 13 years to 1850, and the church had just under 60,000 members. The breakdown of member location created some interesting challenges. In 1850, there were roughly 12,000 members of the church in Utah, 15,000 living in the eastern United States and making plans to move to Utah, and the rest, just over 30,000 of them, were living in Great Britain. So with over 50% of the membership living across the Atlantic Ocean, there were communication problems. Remember, there are no telephones, internet, or airplanes to facilitate with communicating changes and updates. The members in Great Britain worried greatly when they learned that Joseph Smith had been killed and the church was being pushed further west. To add to these communication problems, in 1850 the church had stopped printing copies of the Book of Mormon. In Utah, there just weren't enough trees to create the paper to print them, and printing in other states was too expensive. In Great Britain, members were poor, and it was unreasonable to print the Book of Mormon there. So, now more than 50% of the membership was in an area of the world where they couldn't get access to the Book of Mormon. Remember, Most of all the truth claims the church stands on, living prophets, revelation, the priesthood and such, are centered on the Book of Mormon. And now, the largest majority membership in the world didn't have access to this book. So how were the members of the church in Great Britain to enjoy the revelations of a modern day prophet? In 1851, Franklin D. Richards stepped into the role as president of the European Missions and he stared this problem right in the face. How to Grant New Members Access to This Work Without Copies of the Book of Mormon. We know he had the idea immediately on how to fix this, because on February 1st of 1851, Franklin D. Richards wrote a letter to his uncle Levi, who was serving a mission near Liverpool. In that letter, Franklin D. Richards proposed a new pamphlet, or as they called them in the church, a tract, that would contain doctrine, revelations, and translations for the members of the church in Great Britain. It is presumed, Elder Richards wrote, that true believers in the divine mission of the Prophet Joseph Smith will appreciate this little collection of precious truths as a pearl of great price that will increase their ability to maintain and to defend the holy faith by becoming possessors of it. That note by Elder Franklin D. Richards was included in the preface to this tract, which he named a pearl of great price. Now he chose that name, Due to what Christ said in the New Testament in Matthew 13, verses 45 and 46. There, Christ says, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking goodly pearls, who, when he found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The name of this pamphlet, A Pearl of Great Price, was to show its value to those seeking the kingdom of heaven. And just as a pearl grows and develops until it becomes priceless, the book that started as a missionary pamphlet would become priceless to the church. Now, like I said earlier, this book was not compiled at the request of a prophet. Franklin D. Richards chose the revelations and documents, quote, at the repeated solicitations of several friends who are desirous to be put in possession of the many important articles contained therein, end quote. And so the printing of the Pearl of Great Price was underway. Now, we should note that this first edition of the Pearl of Great Price pamphlet is different from the version containing the five sections that the Church uses today. The first version, organized by Franklin D. Richards, contained the books of Moses and Abraham and a number of sections from the Doctrine and Covenants that gave details around the duties of the priesthood. It also had the section in the Doctrine and Covenants where Joseph Smith predicted about the Civil War. We discussed that in the last episode. So in 1851, Franklin Richards printed in Liverpool, England about 7,000 copies of the Pearl of Great Price pamphlet. It was originally about 56 pages long and wrapped in a lovely salmon-colored paper ink. Today, only about 500 of these originals still exist. They were originally sold for just one shilling, or about 30 cents. But today, I found one for sale online and it's being auctioned at about $18,000. If only. Well, the members in Great Britain consumed the Pearl of Great Price. Without access to the Book of Mormon, they now had access to revelations and formal documents that show how they differentiate themselves from typical Christians of the day. So, as the years went on, the English members of the church would emigrate to Utah, and they'd carry their copies of the Pearl of Great Price with them. In 1878, the church decided to formalize the Pearl of Great Price and update its content. So in that year, the original preface which had been written by Franklin D. Richards was dropped, and a few more portions of the Book of Moses were added to the book. After Brigham Young died in October of 1880, the church was ready for its new prophet. John Taylor, after being sustained as the new president, would have his counselors present the Pearl of Great Price as canonized scripture. This was presented for vote under the Law of Common Consent. Joseph F. Smith said, I move that we receive and accept the revelations contained in this book as revelations from God to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and to all the world, quote. The motion was seconded and sustained by unanimous vote of the whole conference. The Pearl of Great Price was now part of the scriptural canon for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, over the years, additional changes were made to the Pearl of Great Price. The portions containing sections of the Doctrine and Covenants would be dropped, The book would be organized into chapters and verses, and more would be added and clarified around the books of Moses and Abraham. Now, what does the Pearl of Great Price mean to the church? In Great Britain in the 1800s, it was the revelatory anchor that the members there held to until they could make it to the States and get near the prophets or acquire a copy of the Book of Mormon. Today, over 100 million copies of the Pearl of Great Price have been printed and distributed around the globe. Faithful members study it alongside the Old Testament and other books of Scripture. Where can you see a copy of The Pearl of Great Price? Copies of the first edition are available at the Church History Library in Salt Lake City, or you can just Google a copy online. Current versions can be bought in most bookstores, or you can read it for free at lds.org. In closing, in the 1851 first edition of The Pearl of Great Price, Franklin D. Richards also included a poem at the beginning of the book. The poem was written by a local member and was called O oh, say what is truth. This is the poem. O oh, say what is truth tis the fairest gem that the riches of worlds can produce and priceless the value of truth will be when the proud monarch's costliest diadem is counted but dross and refuse. Yes say what is truth tis the brightest prize to which mortals or gods can aspire go search in the depths where glittering lies or ascend in pursuit to the loftiest skies tis an aim for the noblest desire. The scepter may fall from the despot's grasp when with winds of stern justice he copes, but the pillar of truth will endure to the last and its firm-rooted bulwarks outstand the rude blast and the wrecks of the fell tyrant's hopes. Then say what is truth, tis the last and the first for the limits of time it steps o'er. Though the heavens depart and the earth's foundations burst, Truth, the sum of existence, will weather the worst, eternal, unchanged, evermore. So, that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 50 Objects. Episode 44, The Pearl of Great Price. As always, if you have questions or comments, you can reach out to me directly at joe, H-O-M-C, at gmail.com. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to like or subscribe to it on iTunes. Feel free to leave a message. It helps spread the word.